Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Masood Olufani on May 30th, 2023. Masood is an artist, writer, and an actor. He talks about his spiritual journey and his work in the interview. I caught Masood while heading out from his studio. As a result, the voice quality is lacking and there's background noise. But please be patient. At about 12 minutes into the interview, the sound quality improves significantly. I started the interview by asking Masood where he grew up and what was spiritual life like growing up. Uh, well, I was born in Los Angeles, uh, raised in um, New York, and spent some time in Florida, Dallas, Texas, New Orleans, Atlanta. My spiritual experience growing up was really kind of a bit all over the place. I was involved in a nation of Islam as a child, so my father was very influenced by uh, Malcolm X. Also attended Lutheran church, because on my grandmother's side of the family, they were Lutheran. That's my mother's mother. I also spent a little time in Baptist church. So it was really kind of all over the place. There was never really a strict regimen of going to church. Sometimes we went to church, sometimes we didn't. So that was really the formulation, the kind of socialization, how I interacted with, with worship service and uh, religion during that time. Would you say you identified more with Christianity than with Islam growing up? As a kid, I don't, you know, I, I don't really remember identifying with too much of anything. I remember, I remember being interested in Bible studies at Sunday school. I love the, uh, the Bible stories, the, the animated books that accompanied those stories I really enjoyed. So there was something about that interaction that I really liked. Islam, I really, the nation of Islam, which is kind of an offshoot of, of Islam, although not traditional Islam at, by any stretch of the imagination. What I remember most about that was bean pies and uh, fried fish. My mm. dad used to have to bribe to get me to go to uh, with a bean pie or a meal of fried fish, which I love. But other than that, the rest of it, I do remember that, that they separated families when you got to the mosque. So the women had to sit in one place, the men in another. And I didn't like that because I could understand why the whole family couldn't be sitting in the same place. But I hadn't really formed an identity when it came to religion. It was, I guess the best way to describe it would be fluid. Why don't you describe for us your spiritual journey then that from that perspective to you running into the Baha'i faith? I went to college, I began college at Parsons School of Design in Greenwich Village in New York City. And then I transferred to Morehouse College after that. It was at Morehouse that I kind of had a spiritual awakening. I uh, had some personal issues I was going through. I think it was, there was a girlfriend at the time from high school and I went through a breakup with her and that led me into like wanting to find something that was more permanent, more stable. So I started reading a lot. I read a lot of books on spirituality, psychology. During that time, I think of thing, reading things like M. Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled. His follow-up book, People of the Lie, The Nature of Evil, was, was definitely influential. I read books on mysticism, 
I was also reading things like the Tao Te Ching, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Old and New Testament. So this was while I was in college at Morehouse. We're talking somewhere around 91, 90, 91, or 91 mostly. And I had a girlfriend at Spelman who introduced me to the Baha'i faith, although she was not a Baha'i. She thought Baha'i faith would be something I would be interested in. At the time, my spiritual search had become so important to me that I actually thought I wanted to be a priest. She was assured that I was not a priest, but she said, you know, I think you might like the Baha'i faith. She was right, although initially I'd never heard of it before. I had to wrap my mind around the fact that here's something existed in the realm of spirituality, and I hadn't heard about it before, so I, I was a bit suspicious because, you know, the whole history of cults and all that sort of thing. A dear friend at the time, who was the woman that my college girlfriend introduced me to, this woman was a Baha'i, an elder. When I met her and she gave me the Book of Prayers, I was really, I was immediately deeply moved by when I opened the book and read like the first prayer, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was Baha'u'llah, Prophet Founder of the Faith, talking about God. The language was familiar to me. I didn't know the name Baha'u'llah. I didn't know the term Baha'i really. But the language of the prayers was very familiar to me. I had come across it before. I had read it in the Bible. I had read it in the Quran. I had read it in the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, the uh, the Buddhist text, and also um, every other profound religious teaching that had ever impacted my life. So it echoed to me. It, it rang something familiar in me. So I knew I was tapping into something. I was being exposed to something that was grounded in a kind of universal truth and reality. And so I got curious because of that and began to uh, read more, move from the prayer books to books about the history of the faith, and then started interacting with the Baha'i community, meeting uh, some of the community members impressed with the put into practice the spiritual truth of the oneness of mankind and many of the other teachings harmony of science and religion equality of women and men all these things were deeply impactful for me and uh, eventually i embraced the faith so that was in 1992 which was the fruit of the holy year 100th anniversary of the passing of baha'u'llah prophet founder of the faith and i've been a baha'i ever since and how old were you masood well let's see 92 i was i think i was 23 at the mm -hmm. time Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had talked previously, and you had mentioned that this person this that was not a Baha'i that introduced you to the Baha'i faith, I guess you had a serious relationship with her? Yeah. Yeah, we did. I actually asked her to marry me in my junior year, and she said yes. I still remember where I asked her, under a magnolia tree, actually. I still remember that. She was a year ahead of me. She was a senior. I was a junior. She went off to graduate school at the Tisch School of Arts at New York University. She's an incredibly talented actress, you know, wonderful actress. But she got sick. She went to the doctor and found out she had breast cancer. And it was a very aggressive form of breast cancer. At age 26, she passed away from breast cancer. Mm. So they still have a scholarship in her name at New York University. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. Yeah. That happened after you became a Baha'i? Yeah, it did. What was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? You know, my parents were, I think, laid back to an abusive fault. 
it would have been okay with me if they had expressed a bit more concern or a bit more inquiry into what what I had accepted and why. My mother did eventually become a Baha'i, although I think that process for her, it was really propelled by her desire to want to be close to me. My mother was kind of almost deeply enmeshed in me, being a single parent and coming from a terribly abusive childhood, I think. I was the unconditional love and relationship that she wanted as a little girl. So in some ways, I was fetishized through the relationship. So when I became a Baha'i and she found out I was a Baha'i and as a new believer in the faith, I really wanted to live the life of being a Baha'i, which when you embrace something that you're all excited and then eventually you settle into a kind of um, rhythm after you've moved through the initial like infatuation phase and your walk in the faith really becomes more settled. That infatuation phase turns into something else, which is a deeper love or a deeper connection to the teachings in the faith and to the center of the faith. She became Baha'i. To be honest with you, it's difficult for me to judge her. I don't know what her relationship was with Baha'u'llah. But I do know, knowing my mother, that that initial connection was about me. That much I, I feel deeply about. My father was, again, like I said, very laissez-faire. I think I was always kind of viewed as being a little odd, a little different in the family. So me embracing a new religion or changing my name, which I did in 2000. So was your father deeply involved in the Nation of Islam when uh, you became a Baha'i? No, no. He was involved in the nation when I was a small child. When I was I a boy. See. We were living in Miami. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, member of the Hebrew Israelites back then. They believe that at the African diaspora are the real children of Israel. They view their practice as not a religion but as a way of life. Although one would look at their practice from the outside and see it as a set of teachings and practices that, for all intents and purposes, follows a pattern of religious uh, observation. Yeah, so he was involved with the Hebrew Israelite. I think he's seen the transformation in me as a result of the Baha'i faith. Obviously, he's learned a lot about it through my experience and my walk and my ups and downs as a Baha'i, my successes and sometimes my failures, my struggles, all of that. So he has observed that in me. I think there's a respect for the faith because of, of who he knows me to be in the wake of my interaction with the Baha'i faith. Is there a story behind your name change? Yeah, I read a book in 2000 called The Slave Trade by an English scholar. In one chapter of the book, I found my surname, my birth surname, which is Bowles, and it was uh, the name of an English slave trader. So I just didn't want that name anymore. And it sent me on a deep search and picked up books on African names. Set it on the suit because I thought it would an easy transition for my family to make my birth name was Michael. But I don't want to do anything too complex because it'd be hard for them to kind of get their minds around. But the name Masood, which means fortunate, or it's also been translated to mean lucky. And then my last name, Olufani, which comes from the Yoruba root Olu, which means of God. So that's what I settled on. Yeah. That's the story. I've been that ever since. Went to the courthouse and everything got to change. 
my wife was at a meeting and where you made a presentation and she said that you had done some family search including um, using a service that uses I guess DNA to find your yes. roots um, maybe you could describe that story for us I was always interested in the history of people of African descent prior to the slave trade because that has always been an enduring question mark in our story. Obviously, during slavery, they didn't keep very good records, and actually they tried to obliterate the history of people of African descent as a methodology or a method for control. So I was always curious about the question marks in our family line. So I engaged a service called African Ancestry, which was founded at Howard University in Washington, D.C. They had the largest database of African DNA of any other organization in the world. Sent away for a kit. I got my maternal and my paternal line done and came back that I was Mende from Sierra Leone uh, on my mother's side. 100% match with a Mende woman is what the report said. So getting that information was really a profound moment for me because I had somewhere to go, some group of people to look to in terms of my ancestral uh, roots. And so it was resting control of the narrative in a way. It was taking control back. And it actually involved a trip to Africa, right? Yeah, I had an opportunity to go to Africa with 33 other individuals who had traced their ancestry to um, Sierra Leone. And so I um, took that trip, and it was 34 of us. We went about been about four and a half months since we made that trip, two and a half weeks in Sierra Leone. And then I traveled to Ghana by myself after that for five days. It was an extraordinary experience. I mean, I went to Mende Land, which is about two hours south of the central city or the capital city, which is Freetown. And went in the village, I mean, back up in the bush, dense thickets and hills and, and people living in mud huts and all of that. It was beautiful. They, the entire village came out to greet us as we got off our bus. They had dancers who were dressed in traditional regalia, dancing for us. The children were there. The elderly were there. Young adults were there. The middle age. Everybody came out to greet us. Just a really moving experience. You know, when we landed in the airport, some of the locals would say, welcome home. And when we were walking down the streets, we hear people, they would say, what tribe? Let's say Mende. Welcome home, my brother. Welcome home. It's a beautiful thing. Many of us cried several times during the journey. But I do plan on going to um, Senegal for the Dakar Arts Festival in Dakar, Senegal next year. Hopefully that'll be the next trip. You know, while I was there, I got citizenship in Sierra Leone, which they're offering citizenship to the descendants of the enslaved, as long as you can prove your DNA. And I also got an ECOS passport, which allows me to travel to 15 different African countries with just my African passport. I don't even need my U.S. passport. Yeah, so I'm looking yeah. forward to going to Senegal next. Let's talk about your art. Tell me about how art manifested itself through you as you were growing up. Well, art saved my life. I mean, you know, I don't mean to say that to be cliche. I mean it because um, some of the um, really dysfunctional stuff that I saw growing up, it was essential that I had an outlet to allow me to go other places in my mind, as opposed to going in the streets or 
getting involved in things that would not have been healthy. They would have been self-destructive or other person destructive. Mm-hmm. So my, my mother was always um, really good about making sure that I had pencils and paper. And I started drawing when I was about four and she just fed that. When we moved to New York after she divorced my father, they divorced each other. She would take me to museums and things like that and take me to the theater. I found when I was making art that I could control time in a way. What I mean by that is that time disappeared. I I would get so lost in the creation of a thing that it just felt like I was going places. I was still in the same place I was physically, but my mind was going other places. And so for me, that was fun. And so a lot of times when I could have been running the streets, I was drawing. I'm not saying I didn't run the streets. Occasionally I did, but I always had the art process to bring me back to a place of safety and a place I could, when I just wanted to enjoy the creative process or when, when I needed to escape from things that were around me, that's where I could go. So that's what you knew you wanted to pursue once you finished high school? No, I wasn't sure. You know, I went to an inner city high school in, in Newark, New Jersey, with all, you know, black and Latino kids. I think we had one white student there. And our school was a good school. I mean, it, it was in the ghetto, but it was a good school. It's one of the better schools in the ghetto of Newark. What I mean by ghetto is not that the, the people or ghetto. I mean, the environment is ghettoized. I mean, we're talking about poverty and drug addiction and families struggling trying to keep their children safe. Arts High, where I went to high school in Newark, was kind of like an oasis in the middle of a lot of struggle, a lot of challenge for the inner city community. So I think when you when you grow up in that environment, when you're around that environment, it's difficult to think to have long-term plans particularly when when your home life is a little chaotic. I mean, I had ambitions, I had dreams, no question about it. But how to get to where I thought I might want to go or if I could was always a big question mark for me. I was a deeply sensitive child. Me being a creative person, I I just felt things so deeply. And so I kind of went with the thing that that I knew I could do. I mean, I I knew I could draw. I knew that people had a good response when I drew. I enjoyed drawing. So I went in the direction of what I knew. Initially, I thought I'd be an architect. But to be honest with you, I didn't know if I could do architecture. I didn't know if I could be an architect. I didn't know if I could have the capacity, right? And this is one of the residual impacts of racism and economic uh, marginalization. This is how racism functions uh, psychologically, a byproduct of the state that's uh, in many ways set up to historically to keep marginalized populations separate and apart. So I didn't even realize I had been impacted by that until I started thinking about college, university, what I was capable of doing. I thought about leaving the cocoon of arts high and going off into the world. And I wasn't sure what I could do or what I had the capacity to do. So in some ways, my horizons were impoverished because I didn't know. And when I left the comfort of Arts High and the support of the teachers there who believe in these students, you know, even though we were all black and brown for the most part and from poor backgrounds, many of us, 
I was crossing the river to go to school in lower Manhattan. It was like entering another world. It was the first time I'd been around so many white kids. I felt like everybody there was rich and I was mm -hmm. poor. The faculty and the administration was pretty much all white. And I found myself struggling. I mean, I graduated 18th in my class. I was top 20 in my class. But when I got to Parsons, I felt so alone. I felt so alone and so unprepared. Not that I couldn't do the work. I just didn't understand what college was about. And I didn't have anybody to really help walk me through that. Through that. My, I was the first one in my family mm -hmm. to go to college. So it was a bit overwhelming. And it wasn't until I read Bell Hook's book, Against the Ropes, that I began to understand what was going on with me. Because at the time, I, I knew I wasn't feeling right in, internally. But I didn't know why. And Bell Hooks really crystallized how black and brown students, when they go to some of these institutions, particularly back in those days when they didn't have apparatus to help support, they didn't understand what they needed to do to give their students from these marginalized populations the best chance to succeed. They needed programming as part of the institution. There was, there was none of that back then. You know, they figured that everybody was on the same playing field and you're not. <laughs> you're not. That's just the reality. Masood, I was looking at your website, which is masood-olufani.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You make a statement here that I thought was interesting, and I thought maybe you could speak to it. You say that your art is a practice of exploring the resonance of memory. Can you mm -hmm. expound a little bit on, on this concept of resonance of memory? Well, memory is it's both personal and also collective. And the way that I engage in it in my studio practice, I'm looking at personal memory, but also a communal kind of ancestral memory through my experience as a person of the African diaspora existing within the, the construct that is America. I'm very much interested in how we remember, what we remember, why we remember, and what materials and or configurations of the visual forms, smells, sounds, touches evoke memory. And so that's an area that I really try to push into because there's something, I think, deeply affecting when the memory is triggered in a person particularly around art, which is my field, I just find that fascinating that a work of art can stimulate a memory, a sense memory in an individual, and a collective cultural memory in a people. So that to me is, is fascinating. You are the creative director of Blocked, a mm -hmm. global healing project. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, tell us about yeah. that project? Well, it started off as the idea was it was going to be a global healing project. You know, as an actor, which is the other part of my practice, uh, sometimes I work on really interesting stuff. I worked on a project which is about the Civil War, and particularly the Civil War in Georgia, General William Tecumseh Sherman's march through Georgia as a general of the Union Army. It took him 37 weeks to march from one end of the state to the next. So this project I worked on was called 37 Weeks Sherman on the March. And it was a series of micro-episodes wedged between shows on public broadcasting. I found out through that show that uh, there were areas in Atlanta that had 
direct connections to the transatlantic slave trade, but there were no markings. There was no, there was no acknowledgement in the city through plaques or public works of art, as I had encountered in other places like Montgomery or New York City, other cities that have done a much better job of talking about their difficult history. Five Points Martyr Station, which is the central train depot here in the city of Atlanta, it's the station where all of the commuter rail lines converge, the north, south, east, and west lines all converge at that point. And it turns out that on those grounds, there was a slave auction Mm. house. So I proposed doing a public memorial for that site. Initially, what I did was I created a a film um, that was a montage, a photo montage of... Well, it was footage. It was a montage of, of footage of different locations within the Five Points Martyr Station, people moving through the station. And then I, f- I did a fade in and fade out of the only picture of the slave auction house that we know that exists in the picture frame. So as people are moving through the train station, you see this image of the slave auction house come in and then fade up and then fade down, fade up and fade down. That was the film that I created, kind of like the ghostly registry of of history that will not be repressed, that will not be silenced. From that, I proposed a public memorial because I thought it needed to take place. And I got the support of Savannah College of Art and Design where I went to graduate school. They were going to cover the expense of the whole thing as well as 20 years of insurance for the site itself. I also met Congressman John Lewis when he was live. He got his enthusiastic support, but the city didn't want to take the project Mm. on even though they, the only thing they would have to do is um, really prep the site. That was about it. So the project stalled there. It's remained stalled to this day, unfortunately. It's been written about in a national arts publication. There's, a full, there's an article that includes it, an article that talks about how different cities are engaging around the issue of slavery through public art. So uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But, you know, God works in mysterious ways because even though that that project got stalled and it was frustrating. I got introduced to a much larger project through one of the universities here in town that is committing a substantial amount of money to memorialize the enslaved people that helped to build the campus. And I was engaged as the lead artist with an architecture firm. And we just found out that we made it to the final round. So it's going to be three teams that are left to be interviewed and for the job Mm -hmm. itself. It's an expansive project of really a kind of global reach that I'm really excited about. So um, we will see what happens. But one one door opens, one door closes, another one opens. It's true. And you never know. The other door may open up someday as well. Exactly. I hope you become the finalist. You're awarded that project. (laughs) I appreciate it. You've contributed to... The Jacob Lawrence Struggle Series Catalog, but I'm not familiar with the Jacob Lawrence uh-huh. Struggle Series Catalog. Can you tell me what that is? Well, Jacob Lawrence is one of the most important painters of the 20th century. He was a um, part of the Harlem Renaissance. He was maybe half a generation after the Harlem Renaissance, but he's still claimed, I think, by the Harlem Renaissance. But Jacob Lawrence worked for the WPA during World War II as a painter. Of course, that was a program that was started by President Roosevelt with the influence, I'm sure, of his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a great champion of the poor and of marginalized communities generally. So Lawrence came up there and he chronicled the history of black people in America. 
depict in his paintings, which were kind of abstracted human forms. And he played a lot with perspective and how objects appear in the foreground as opposed to in the background. He distorted some of that intentionally in his work. He was a master of color. There was an opportunity to contribute to a catalog to commemorate the touring of his struggle series of paintings, which is a collection of paintings of the history of black America and the struggle of black Americans. I contributed to an article as part of a collective of scholars and artists to this catalog, which was a great honor because I have deep respect for Lawrence's legacy and for his work. What did you write about? They gave me a painting to write about. So you take the painting, you deconstruct the painting and talk about it within the context of history and also of Lawrence's approach to painting. You're a writer, you're uh, an actor, you're an artist. What's on your plate now in those three areas? I've got two exhibitions opening up. I've got one in Lake City, South Carolina, which is going to be a fabulous exhibition. It's called Southern Voices Global Visions collection of a number of artists who have all won what is called the Southern Prize, which is one of the largest art prizes in the country. You win at the state level and then you compete for the regional level. So I won for the state of Georgia a few years ago. They asked me to be part of this exhibition, so I'm super excited. Then I've got the largest solo exhibition I've ever done, which I'm really excited about. And that'll be opening up in 24. And it's going to be new work that's been inspired by my travels to West Africa. Really, I'm looking forward to getting these forms that I've had in my mind since my travels out and uh, turning them into uh, works of art. Yeah, in the visual arts, that's what's going on. I'm working on a book now, about 117, 118 pages into what I think is going to be about a 225-page book called Redbone about the life of my mother about my time with my mother and, and an ancestral kind of journey through my family line. It does a deep dive into family dysfunction, but it ties, within the context of the black community, it ties that dysfunction to the history of slavery and Jim Crow and the extreme pressures that families had to live under and what how they had to adapt in order to adjust to the absurdity of their reality here in America. So working on that book, I guess those are the major things that are going on. Acting, I'm auditioning as usual, doing a lot of voiceover work right now, working on a documentary about the fashion icon, Andre Leon Talley, where I'm the the lead voiceover actor for that, which is kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Masu, thank you so much for taking this time to share your story and the work that you're doing. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Masood Olufani artist, writer, and actor. You can find his work at masood-olufani.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
of his beloved was seek to find rest away was seek to find rest away from his heart his heart's desire to the true true lover To the true, true lover, separation is Oh, 
Isaiah goes on to say they shall see the light.
Zion. All brothers and sisters, we'll go walking hand in hand. Just have abandoned the physical garment and have ascended to the spiritual world. May our love guide you.
Side by side, by side.